Chapter Twenty Four of the Dog Crusoe and His Master. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Aaron White. The Dog Crusoe and His Master by R. M. Ballantyne. Chapter Twenty Four. Plans and Prospects. Dick becomes homesick and Henri metaphysical. Indians attack the camp. A blow-up. On the following day the Indians gave themselves up to unlimited feasting in consequence of the arrival of a large body of hunters with an immense supply of buffalo meat. It was a regular day of rejoicing. Upwards of six hundred buffaloes had been killed, and as the supply of meat before their arrival had been ample, the camp was now overflowing with plenty. Feasts were given by the chiefs, and the medicine men went about the camp uttering loud cries which were meant to express gratitude to the great spirit for the bountiful supply of food. They also carried a portion of meat to the aged and infirm who were unable to hunt for themselves and had no young men in their family circle to hunt for them. This arrival of the hunters was a fortunate circumstance, as it put the Indians in great good humor, and inclined them to hold friendly intercourse with the trappers, who for some time continued to drive a brisk trade in furs. Having no market for the disposal of their furs, the Indians, of course, had more than they knew what to do with, and were therefore glad to exchange those of the most beautiful and valuable kind for a mere trifle, so that the trappers laid aside their traps for a time and devoted themselves to traffic. Meanwhile, Joe Blunt and his friends made preparations for their return journey. "'You see,' remarked Joe to Henri and Dick, as they sat beside the fire in P.I.M.'s lodge and feasted on a potful of grasshopper soup, which the great chief's squaw had just placed before them. "'You see, my calculations is as follows. What with trapping beavers and hunting, we three have made enough to set us up, and it likes us, in the Mustang Valley.' "'Ha!' interrupted Dick, remitting a few seconds for the use of his teeth in order to exercise his tongue. "'Ha! Joe, but it don't like me. What, give up a hunter's life and become a farmer? I should think not.' "'Bon!' ejaculated Henri, but whether the remark had reference to the grasshopper soup or the sentiment we cannot tell. "'Well,' continued Joe, commencing to devour a large buffalo steak with a hunter's appetite, "'you'll please yourselves, lads, as to that. But as I was saying, we got a powerful lot of furs.' and a big pack of odds and ends for the injuns we chanced to meet with by the way, and powder and lead to last us a twelve-month, besides five good horses to carry us and our packs over the plains. So if it's agreeable to you, I mean to make a bee-line for the Mustang Valley. We're pretty sure to meet with Blackfeet on the way, and if we do, we'll try to make peace between them and the snakes. I expect it'll be pretty well on for six weeks afore we get to home, so we'll start to-morrow. That is fat we will do very well, said Henri. Will you please don't ask me one petite morsel of steak? I'm ready for anything, Joe, cried Dick. You are the leader. Just point the way, and I'll answer for two of us following you. Eh, won't we, Crusoe? We will, remarked the dog quietly. How comes it, inquired Dick, that these Indians don't care for our tobacco? Well, they like their own better, I suppose, answered Joe. Most all the western Indians do. They make it of the dried leaves of the shumac and the inner bark of the red willow, chopped very small and mixed together. 
They call this stuff kinnikinnick, but they like to mix about a fourth of our tobacco with it, so P.I.M. tells me, and he's a good judge. The amount that redskin mortals smoke is uncommon. What are they doing yonder? inquired Dick, pointing to a group of men who had been feasting for some time past in front of a tent within sight of our trio. Going to sing, I think. As he spoke, six young warriors were seen to work their bodies about in a very remarkable way and give utterance to still more remarkable sounds, which gradually increased until the singers burst out into that terrific yell or war-whoop for which American savages have long been famous. Its effect would have been appalling to unaccustomed ears. Then they allowed their voices to die away in soft, plaintive tones, while their action corresponded thereto. Suddenly the furious style was revived, and then the men wrought themselves into a condition little short of madness, while their yells rang wildly through the camp. This was too much for ordinary canine nature to withstand, so all the dogs in the neighborhood joined in the horrible chorus. Crusoe had long since learned to treat the eccentricities of Indians and their curs with dignified contempt. He paid no attention to the serenade, but lay sleeping by the fire until Dick and his companions rose to take leave of their host and return to the camp of the fur traders. The remainder of that night was spent in making preparations for setting forth on the morrow, and when, at grey dawn, Dick and Crusoe lay down to snatch a few hours' repose, the yells and howling in the snake camp were going on as vigorously as ever. The sun had arisen, and his beams were just tipping the summits of the rocky mountains, causing the snowy peaks to glitter like flame, and the deep ravines and gorges to look sombre and mysterious by contrast, when Dick and Joe and Henri mounted their gallant steeds, and with Crusoe gambling before, and the two pack-horses trotting by their side, turned their faces eastward and bade adieu to the Indian camp. Crusoe was in great spirits. He was perfectly well aware that he and his companions were on their way home, and testified his satisfaction by bursts of scampering over the hills and valleys. Doubtless he thought of Dick Varley's cottage, and of Dick's mild, kind-hearted mother. Undoubtedly, too, he thought of his own mother, Fan, and felt a glow of filial affection as he did so. Of this we feel quite certain. He would have been unworthy of the title of hero if he hadn't, Perchance he thought of grumps, but of this we are not quite so sure. We rather think upon the whole that he did. Dick, too, let his thoughts run away in the direction of home. Sweet word. Those who have never left it cannot by any effort of imagination realize the full import of the word home. Dick was a bold hunter, but he was young, and this was his first long expedition. Oftentimes, when sleeping under the trees and gazing dreamily up through the branches at the stars, had he thought of home, until his longing heart began to yearn to return. He repelled such tender feelings, however, when they became too strong, deeming them unmanly, and sought to turn his mind to the excitements of the chase. But latterly his efforts were in vain. He became thoroughly homesick, and while admitting the fact to himself, he endeavored to conceal it from his comrades. He thought that he was successful in this attempt. Poor Dick Varley, as yet he was sadly ignorant of human nature. Henri knew it, and Joe Blunt knew it. Even Crusoe knew that something was wrong with his master, although he could not exactly make out what it was. 
but crusoe made memoranda in the notebook of his memory he jotted down the peculiar phrases of his master's new disease with the care and minute exactness of a physician and we doubt not ultimately added the knowledge of the symptoms of homesickness to his already well-filled stores of erudition it was not until they had set out on their homeward journey that Dick Varley's spirits revived, and it was not till they reached the beautiful prairies on the eastern slopes of the Rocky Mountains and galloped over the greensward towards the Mustang Valley that Dick ventured to tell Joe Blunt what his feelings had been. "'Do you know, Joe,' he said confidentially, reining up his gallant steed after a sharp gallop, "'do you know I've been feeling awful low for some time past?' "'I know it, lad,' answered Joe, with a quiet smile, in which there was a dash of something that implied he knew more than he chose to express. Dick felt surprised, but he continued, "'I wonder what it could have been. I never felt so before.' "'Twas homesickness, boy,' returned Joe. "'How do you know that?' The "'Same way as I know most things, by experience and observation. I've been homesick myself once.' but it was long, long agone. Dick felt much relieved at this candid confession by such a bronzed veteran, and the chords of sympathy having been struck, he opened up his heart at once to the evident delight of Henri, who, among other curious partialities, was extremely fond of listening to and taking part in conversations that bordered on the metaphysical and were hard to be understood. Most conversations that were not connected with eating and hunting were of this nature to Henri. Homesick? he cried. Which mean being sick of home. Ha! That is what I always be when I goes out on the expedition. Oui, vraiment. I always packs up, continued Joe, paying no attention to Henri's remark. I always packs up and sets off for home when I gets homesick. It's the best cure, and when hunters are young like you, Dick, it's the only cure. I've knowed fellers almost die of homesickness, and I'm told they do go under altogether sometimes. Go under! exclaimed Henri. Hui, I was all but die myself when I first tried to get away from home. If I have not get away, I'd not be here today. Henri's idea of homesickness was so totally opposed to theirs that his comrades only laughed and refrained from attempting to set him right. The first time I was took bad with it was in a country something like that, said Joe, pointing to a wide stretch of undulating prairie dotted with clusters of trees and meandering streamlets that lay before them. I'd been out about two months, and I was making a good thing of it, for game was plenty, when I began to think somehow more than usual a home. My mother was alive then. Joe's voice sank to a deep, solemn tone, as he said this, and for a few minutes he rode on in silence. Well, it grew worse and worse. I dreamed of home all night and thought of it all day, till I began to shoot bad, and my comrades was getting tired of me. So says I to them one night, says I, I give out, lads. I'll make tracks for the settlement tomorrow. They tried to laugh me out of it at first, but it was no go, so I packed up, bid them good day, and set off alone on a trip of five hundred miles. The very first mile of the way back I began to mend, and before two days I was all right again. Joe was interrupted at this point by the sudden appearance of a solitary horseman on the brow of an eminence not half a mile distant. 
the three friends instantly drove their pack-horses behind a clump of trees, but not in time to escape the vigilant eye of the red man, who had uttered a loud shout which brought up a band of his comrades at full gallop. "'Remember, Henri,' cried Joe Blunt, "'our errand is one apiece.' caution was needed, for in the confusion of the moment Henri was making preparation to sell his life as dearly as possible. Before another word could be uttered, they were surrounded by a troop of about twenty yelling Blackfeet Indians. They were, fortunately, not a war party, and still more fortunately they were peaceably disposed, and listened to the preliminary address of Joe Blunt with exemplary patience, after which the two parties encamped on the spot, the council fire was lighted, and every preparation made for a long palaver. We will not trouble the reader with the details of what was said on this occasion. The party of Indians was a small one, and no chief of any importance was attached to it. Suffice it to say that the pacific overtures made by Joe were well received, the trifling gifts made thereafter were still better received, and they separated with mutual expressions of good will. Several other bands, which were afterwards met with, were equally friendly, and only one war party was seen. Joe's quick eye observed it in time to enable them to retire unseen behind the shelter of some trees, where they remained until the Indian warriors were out of sight. The next party they met with, however, were more difficult to manage, and unfortunately blood was shed on both sides before our travellers escaped. It was at the close of a beautiful day that a war party of Blackfeet were seen riding along a ridge on the horizon. It chanced that the prairie at this place was almost destitute of trees or shrubs large enough to conceal the horses. By dashing down the grassy wave into the hollow between the two undulations and dismounting, Joe hoped to elude the savages, so he gave the word, but at the same moment a shout from the Indians told that they were discovered. "'Look sharp, lads! Throw down the packs on the highest point of the ridge!' cried Joe, undoing the lashings, seizing one of the bales of goods, and hurrying to the top of the undulation with it. "'We must keep them at arm's length, boys!' be alive war parties are not to be trusted dick and henri seconded joe's efforts so ably that in the course of two minutes the horses were unloaded the packs piled in the form of a wall in front of a broken piece of ground the horses picketed close beside them and our three travellers peeping over the edge with their rifles cocked while the savages about thirty in number came sweeping down towards them i'll try to get them to palaver said joe blunt but keep your eye on them, Dick, and if they behave ill, shoot the horse of the leading chief. I'll throw up my left hand as a signal. Mind, lad, don't hit human flesh till my second signal is given, and see that Henri don't draw till I get back to you. So saying, Joe sprang lightly over the slight parapet of their little fortress and ran swiftly out, unarmed, towards the Indians. In a few seconds he was close up with them, and in another moment was surrounded. At first the savages brandished their spears and rode round the solitary man, yelling like fiends as if they wished to intimidate him. But as Joe stood like a statue, with his arms crossed and a grave expression of contempt on his countenance, they quickly desisted, and drawing near, asked him where he came from and what he was doing there. Joe's story was soon told, but instead of replying they began to shout vociferously and evidently meant mischief. If the Blackfeet are afraid to speak to the pale-face, he will go back to his braves, 
said Joe, passing suddenly between two of the warriors and taking a few steps toward the camp. Instantly every bow was bent, and it seemed as if our bold hunter were about to be pierced by a score of arrows, when he turned round and cried, The black feet must not advance a single step. The first that moves his horse shall die. The second that moves himself shall die. To this the black feet chief replied scornfully, The pale face talks with a big mouth. We do not believe his words. The snakes are liars. We will make no peace with them. While he was yet speaking, Joe threw up his hand. There was a loud report, and the noble horse of the savage chief lay struggling in death agony on the ground. The use of the rifle, as we have before hinted, was little known at this period among the Indians of the far west, and many had never heard the dreaded report before, although all were aware from hearsay of its fatal power. The fall of the chief's horse, therefore, quite paralyzed them for a few moments, and they had not recovered from their surprise when a second report was heard, a bullet whistled past, and a second horse fell. At the same moment there was a loud explosion in the camp of the pale faces, a white cloud enveloped it, and from the midst of this a loud shriek was heard as Dick, Henri, and Crusoe bounded over the packs with frantic gestures. At this the gaping savages wheeled their steeds round. The dismounted horsemen sprang on behind two of their comrades, and the whole band dashed away over the plains as if they were chased by evil spirits. Meanwhile Joe hastened towards his comrades in a state of great anxiety, for he knew at once that one of the powder horns must have been accidentally blown up. "'No damage done, boys, I hope,' he cried on coming up. "'Damage!' cried Henri, holding his hands tight over his face. "'Oh, we great damage! Mosh damage me two eyes be blown out of the holes!' "'Not quite so bad as that, I hope.' said Dick, who was very slightly singed, and forgot his own hurts in anxiety about his comrade. "'Let me see!' "'My!' exclaimed Joe Blunt, while a broad grin overspread his countenance. "'You've not improved your looks, Henri.' This was true. The worthy hunter's hair was singed to such an extent that his entire countenance presented the appearance of a universal frizzle. Fortunately, the skin, although much blackened, was quite uninjured, a fact which, when he ascertained it beyond a doubt, afforded so much satisfaction to Henri that he capered about, shouting with delight, as if some piece of good fortune had befallen him. The accident had happened in consequence of Henri having omitted to replace the stopper of his powder horn, and when, in his anxiety for Joe, he fired at random amongst the Indians, despite Dick's entreaties to wait, a spark communicated with the powder horn and blew him up. Dick and Crusoe were only a little singed, but the former was not disposed to quarrel with an accident which had sent their enemies so promptly to the right about. This band followed them for some nights in the hope of being able to steal their horses while they slept, but they were not brave enough to venture a second time within range of the death-dealing rifle. End of chapter 24 Recording by Aaron White